Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, live from the Star Worldwide Network Studios, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. I always and sound... I am Chris Clements. How are you? I always, I always sound over the top when I start. Well, that's because, not how I talk. because you have that voice. Yeah, right. You have a voice made for radio. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. That's, as we all know, my broadcasting degree did not get me on TV. Yeah. Speaking of on TV, uh, Carrie Lake's our nominee. She's spent a lot of time on TV. What uh, We have Kathy Aird yes. from Center for Arizona Policy. Very special guest. Her second, second time... time on light beer, dark money, yeah, and and in our new decks, what do you think? I'm impressed. Yeah, we've we've yeah. you know we paid a lot for this. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> in closer. blood and sweat and <laughs> tears. Yeah, that's pretty. And cool. you're still going, so that that's great. It, you know, yes. we still have people coming on, which is really yeah. a blessing. Yeah, me being on didn't tor- torpedo the whole deal. It didn't. No, it actually made people really <laughs> interested in yeah. this idea that hey, wait, maybe this has legs. <laughs> maybe, maybe. We'll so, you've been. Uh, Watching politics, obviously, for many, many years. What do you think of the primary results? Um, anything that was a surprise? And how do things look as we head into the general? Uh, well, I've said if Republicans can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, they're on their way to doing it. Um, I've thought yep. that for quite some time. I am concerned. Uh, I think it's all a mess right now. I think it's very divided. I think that there's a lack of strategy and wisdom often. And that's going to hurt in the long run. And I've seldom seen it so divided and so much at stake. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then now as we look to the general, what's going to happen were some of the endorsements in the primary that made a difference in the primary, for example, the former president, what's he going to do to get these people elected in the general election? Right. So just some of those concerns that uh, it's not, you know, when people start talking about this big red wave or big conservative wave, and I'm like, uh, we'll see. Right. Um, you know, we can't take anything for granted right now. Well, and I think, and this this will go right to an issue that is near and dear to your heart. Uh, the Dobbs decision clearly has had some impact on uh, what things look like in the fall, or at least the perception is. Um, I initially, when the when the Alito opinion leaked, I kind of felt like, well, I mean, one, we knew it was coming, um, and two, I figured. If you are a single-issue voter on this issue, then you're voting anyway. I mean, it's not like it's going to increase. Now, that may be the way the Democrats are messaging messaging this. They may increase turnout with younger women than they would otherwise. But why has the the pro-life side been so scattershot on this? I, I The thing that I've been the most surprised by— is that this has been the battle for 50 years, and it happens. And not only did it happen, we had a three-month heads-up. How in the world, when this actually came down in June, was there not a unified message coming from the pro-life community? I mean, that's just, I was baffled. On the national level, the challenge, you know, my information or what I saw you had a lot of the national pro-life groups working together for Dobbs in the day it came down. No one is leading or coordinating what happens now. 
And so scattershot's probably a good description. And so on the national level, you've got some that are involved in campaigns, you've got some doing this or that. But as far as the, the media, the messaging, what's going to work, um, being caught a little, little flat-footed on responding, and of course the media is totally in sync. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, we, we've been prepared and we were, we were laying groundwork, but it's, it's probably gone slower than I would have liked um, as far as like, what do we need to do in Arizona? The misinformation has been very difficult. I mean, the narrative has been set. You know, the idea that a pregnant woman walking down the street is, you know, going to be in danger or that a woman with an ectopic pregnancy won't be able to get treatment. And you know, I think most of us, when you stop and think, you realize that a woman with an ectopic pregnancy, her life is in danger. Right. So there's no pro-life law that is going to stop that woman from getting treatment to remove that ectopic pregnancy. And so that, and even like the media narrative that, oh, the, pre, the law in Arizona that's been on the book since whether they say 1901 or 1864 or like prehistoric, you know, almost right. kind of thing. And no, the real truth is it was in effect on January 21st, 1973, the day before Roe versus Wade came down. In 1977, it was reaffirmed by the state legislature. So it's really the 1977 law, the 1973 law, take your pick, that has been in, you know, would have been in effect absent the Roe versus Wade decision. Mm -hmm. So Arizona clearly, you know, still up until that time, did not have abortion legal except to save the life of the mother. Is it old language? Yes. Does it need to be updated? Probably. But it still was a rational pro-life law. And that's what you know we've tried to say. I think also the, the lack of accurate information that people didn't know what Roe versus Wade did. Right. And I think we, we see that over and over again, that Roe versus Wade actually legalized abortion up until the moment of birth. And that, you know, so that education to try to break through all the noise out there and to say, so some of these Democrats that are running, that that's their position. Right. That you could, you know, we used to say that you could have a woman in one emergency room fighting for the life of her unborn child at full stage 40 weeks and another woman in the next one having an abortion. And it was legal for if her health was endangered. So, you know, some of that is the, the lack of messaging, the, the money difference. Right. I mean, the abortion industry is loaded. And we're not. Yeah. And so to have that kind of sophisticated media campaign ready to go, that hasn't happened. Yeah. What? Um, so the, and and this is I think something that Republican candidates and office holders have been not very good at, and because they've tended to cower. Um, and but the position of every Democrat in the House, the U.S. House is abortion up to birth. They voted on that. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I think that that is, I mean, there's no question that that's an extreme position because even Pew and Gallup, when you look at this issue, it's somewhere, as far as Americans supporting abortion for any reason up to the time of birth, it's about somewhere between 10 and 13%. It's a very small minority. Um, the vast majority of Americans... Uh, feel like there should be some restrictions, such, especially after the second trimester, uh, or it, all restrictions really, except for like life of the mother. Fifteen and twenty weeks. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is when you when you hear the those that that are pro-abortion talking about, you know, this is terrible for women, and you know, you hear people say, "Oh, we'll go to Europe because they're such you know so much better for women's rights." Most of Europe. I think all of Europe is pretty much at it's 15, actually, it's at, 15 at weeks. 12. There's some, some countries that have it at eight. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's it, it's a it's a it's a bad argument. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're in line with China and North Korea. Yeah, exactly. On allowing abortions up until wow. the moment of birth, and that's and so when you start to talk about that, then people. I mean, we've done the some of the polling and focus group work. When you start to bring out some of that, then people, oh, I had I didn't realize that. No, I don't support that. Right. Now, yeah, the, I think I think you're right. Though, that that we the. Republicans who are being hammered on this issue are not doing a good job of fighting back and pointing out the, the absolute extreme on the other side in terms of votes that have been taken. Right. Which is for infanticide. I've said it on the show before. I think up until birth or, or even what's being proposed in California, which is after birth, right. that that decision can be made. I mean, how do you defend something like that? You can't. Well, and I and here in Arizona, as you bring it in, you know, a lot of people, well, not a lot. There is a the the narrative is that Carrie Lake is an extreme, has an extreme position on abortion. Actually, I'm not certain what it is in a nuanced way, but but Katie Hobbs running for governor, her position is radical. Oh, and I've got I've watched Katie Hobbs for years. I've seen her on the floor of the state senate. I've seen her um, let loose with. Um, you know, a rant about pro-life laws and any kind of restrictions on abortion, that, yeah, she's as extremist. I mean, you take Katie Hobbs, Chris Mays, Julie Gunnigal, these women that are running for governor, attorney general, Maricopa County attorney, they are as radical and leftist and extremist on abortion as anyone. And, it, and, and that, yeah, they, they don't see, there's no restriction. I mean, whether it's whether it's parental consent, whether it's uh, making sure that the woman's health and safety is protected. I mean, they don't, whether the abortion clinics would have any kind of oversight on safety measures, they're against all of that. And then you've got, you know, saying, well, they're not going to enforce the law. Right, well, right. Well, and I think that that's a, that's a pretty stark choice. And I think that that's where the messaging needs to be, is that this, this is a choice between a radical agenda versus someone that or, or an agenda that is uh, that tries to protect the sanctity of life, and there's probably some exceptions needed. Now, one of the things I was thinking about, and it's amazing how you know you you start thinking through this stuff a little bit more clearly as there's the debate. But I was thinking that if there's you know if you, usually I have personally taken the position. Uh, outlaw abortion except in the cases of rape incest and life of the mother um the and then there have been people made arguments about what week that kind of thing but it real i realized that i mean if you've if you're pregnant as a result of rape or incest i mean and and you're allowed to have an abortion you should have that abortion as early as possible not wait until i mean there shouldn't be a weak issue i mean meaning weeks of pregnancy um if the, the only way that that has any bearing is if it's an issue on life of the mother in my mind i don't know it just strikes me as i would think that if you don't want to carry a pregnancy because of rape or incest then that should be taken care of early on in the process well the rape and incest issue is the most challenging it's the most difficult and you know as a woman a woman is certainly you know, great empathy. Can't I can't imagine or fathom what it would be like as a woman to have been a victim of rape or incest. So you're traumatized already. The problem is, is that having an abortion on top of that is just another trauma. And so, you know, should the life of the child be determined by how it was conceived? You know, those are very difficult arguments to make in the public square, right. even though those are, are true. And what what gets overlooked and what's not out there in the narrative 
is the example of somebody like Ryan Baumbacher with um, Radiance Foundation, who was, his mother was a victim and had him, and he is, you know, just an amazing individual. And so you have stories of women who decided to go ahead and proceed with a pregnancy, mm -hmm. place the child for adoption, and those have been wonderful, heartwarming stories. Those stories aren't out there. Right. And, and to encourage a woman that, okay, you know, to, to stop and think about it. But, you know, you can't go out in the public square and say, oh, yeah, you know, too bad. I mean, it, you know, it's the most difficult issue because the pro-life community is very divided and, on that yeah. issue. And I've said for a long time that we gave politicians a pass on rape and incest exceptions all these years. So I feel like I can't come in now and say, oh, I'm not going to support you, politician running for office, because you support a rape and incest exception. When we never made, maybe some did, but for generally speaking, right. the pro-life movement did not make that the, the litmus test right. on rape and incest, that we would support someone because we know that it only happens 1% to 2% of the time. But yet, of course, the narrative that's out there is that, oh, this happens a lot. Right. And then if you're a victim of rape, you're almost likely to, you, you, oh, you're going to get pregnant. And that doesn't happen that way, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Right, but right. that gets lost in the discussion. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, what, and, what and, really gets lost in the discussion is the fact that this is in the states now, right? Well, it's and that's, in the states. That's where I and was the going, states are going to decide that's something going in the middle because because we have been fighting for fifty years that this was a states' rights issue. Absolutely. The day after the decision came down, all of a sudden you had people talking about a national abortion ban. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's an analogy out there that when we had... Or codifying Roe, you know, at, at well, the national level what, as well. So which is what got the Democrats all, wanted to do. So you've got both sides fighting out, thinking they can do something on the national level. But really, what we've been arguing for the last 50 years is it needs to be in the states. But yes and no. Um, That's why it's, I it's, been, yeah. it's been argued that way because there's not... Because of the, the belief that there's not a right to an abortion in the federal constitution. Right. So when you say that that's up to the elected representatives, to the people through their elected representatives, that includes the United States Congress and the president. And so the only way to not have this hodgepodge of laws where it's, you know, where California is paying people to fly into California to have an abortion at any stage of pregnancy for right. any reason, is to have a federal law that is, a, to call it a national abortion ban. So in some ways, you know, I saw one analogy I thought was interesting to some of the civil rights laws where when Brown versus Board of Education came down, what, in 1954, if I have my timing right, then it took 10 years until we had the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Right. So that, you know, sometimes it just takes a while to get to the federal level. So some of these candidates who are saying, oh, well, it's not a federal issue, that's not true, as shown by what you said earlier, the Women's Health Protection Act, or whatever they're calling it, that would codify Roe on the federal level. So ultimately, if we're, if we're going to protect life in all 50 states, it's going to have to be a federal issue. But right now, it's a state's issue. It's not going to be a federal issue for quite some time. Exactly. You're not going to be able to overcome the filibuster. There's no way. Yeah. Well, and I think that, look, give it some time to see what states do, and, and then there's some actual evidence of, okay, these things are working, this isn't working. I mean, it's, it, it is frustrating to me that we are about the only country in the world that continues to have this debate. Um, most countries, like we talked about, particularly in Europe, have settled this. And, you know, there's been a consensus, and it's just not a part of the political process as much. I mean, Ireland a few years ago. But um, I don't know. It's, uh, but, but, you know, but that's a testament to the commitment of the pro-life community. That because I think for certainly a dedicated pro-lifer like myself, 
one of the uh, most, um, the biggest tragedies that have happened is the, the taking of unborn life. And that unborn children do have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we don't give up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think right now the recognition is when you have a victory, okay, this is a new beginning. And so I think it's taking a while for people to understand that, oh, we have probably more work ahead of us than we had in oh, the past. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the, now the real work begins. Yes, I think, exactly. I think you, know, you who have said that are absolutely correct. Yeah, I think that, and I, I guess there were a lot of people who just felt like, oh, the end is, we're done. Yeah. Roe v. No, Wade is overturned. No, now, it's, doubts, now it really now becomes hardly. difficult. <laughs> but I mean, and, and that's a great segue because you've been really hard at work for a long time. And this legislative session that, you, that we just exited with the very slim majorities in both the House and the Senate here in the state, great state of Arizona, you guys kick some butt. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just going to put in those very, <laughs> I wasn't going to, you know, put in swear terms, but I mean, I was, you were going to say it like I would say well, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, because that's what you do. But um, <laughs> I was just looking at the list and that you have on your website. And this might've been one of the most consequential legislative sessions that, that your organization, Center for Arizona Policy has had. In, in quite some time. I mean, dealing with the issues of life, which we just touched on, parents' rights and family issues, um, you know, the girls <laughs> being able to play their, their sports and not have men play their sports issues. You guys went, went to the mat on a lot of different issues. And we're so grateful. congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. For standing, especially for standing up for parents and families when we, we're going to refer to California a couple times here. I mean, they are absolutely throwing families under the bus. Well, and I think you see, I don't know that awakening is really the right term, but there's a level of engagement by parents that we have never seen before. Mm -hmm. And whether that's because of COVID and they saw more of what was going on in their child's education, but parents, you know, you, uh, the sleeping giant has been awoken. And the idea that, you know, your precious little girl who's trying to play softball or soccer or whatever is going to be playing against a biological male, or that you as a parent aren't going to be informed of what's going on in the classroom, you know, parents want to engage, and they've yeah. been blocked from being engaged. And so, you know, there there has been a, a re-engagement, and and that that's all a good thing. And more civic engagement, I think you're going to see it in school board races this year. I think you're going to see some parents take over some school boards. Let's hope so. And that, you know, this has been needed for a long time. But let me just say, having only 31 and 16 is not fun. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's well, you have yeah. a singular reputation. I'm sure that <laughs> that uh, you earned it. Yeah, not so sure. But anyway, but that's you know. But I, you know, we have lawmakers who see these issues and get these issues, and who um, have values, who have concerns, who believe in foundational principles. And so when they have the opportunity, you know, the idea that a a 14 year old could be given um, gender reassignment surgery. And most people out there think, what? You know, let's at least wait until they're 18. Even if you support, you know, transitioning or however you want to characterize it, well, there are a lot of decisions you can't make till you're 18. And so yeah. why would you, you know, we lost on, you know, a ban on puberty blockers and hormone therapy, but at least said no surgery. And that's where, you know, sometimes it's incremental, you know, as well. But that's what a lot of it is based on what's going to be best for children. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's that this, it's interesting because when we had you on last, it was over a year ago. Yeah. And this felt like a this the trans issue felt a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. It 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 felt like it was less settled, and that there was a lot more pro trans 
push out there than there there was on wait a minute let's protect kids i think we've seen a big shift in the in the last year um i i think people are starting to wake up to wait a minute it is it is crazy that we have biological males competing in women's sports well i think that um, was the big shift i i think you the upin swimmer yeah the upin swimmer i mean swimmer, the upin yeah. swimmer that i mean we had the track girls from Connecticut that had lost started losing their track track mates when the two males decided to you know be female and 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 go against them in, in Connecticut races. But I think the U Penn swimmer did so much that and and even the idea that you know what what females were subject to in the locker room right. with with the biological male walking around and and just and that he won the race and they had no chance and so yeah. and even well especially because a year before he was he was not Lila he was yeah. he was Will. Yeah. Well, and, and you just, had, and yeah, you had, he woke up one day and said, "Hey, I can win more races." Well, and you had University of Arizona female swimmers, you know, made a statement. I mean, so you had, yeah. you know, they some of the women sports athletes were emboldened to speak out in an awareness. We're not going to have women's sports, and even the 50th anniversary of Title Nine. Yeah, yeah. And they have, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, we we worked so hard to get equity in sports for women. And now we're going to erase it. And now we're going to let men compete in women's sports. And that's where, you know, people go too far. And even on the parents' rights issue in the legislature, you know, the, the other side has doubled down. And they're, they're not on the trans issues, on the parents' rights issues. They're just doubling down. And one of my pet peeves lately is, you know, okay, teachers are leaving the teaching field. It's not just about salary, folks. Yeah. It's about, it's about the trans stuff. It's about being, you know, forced to have to... Um, you know, use pronouns to do all this kind of stuff that's in there when what, what happened to teaching the basics. And so teachers are leaving because they don't want to be forced to do those things. So it's not just salary. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, it's a crazy, crazy world we live in. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, and, and, but you're right about the, the doubling down. I, you know, I, going back to this governor's race, I think Katie Hobbs, uh, radical on this issue. Um, you know, she opposed everything that you were doing. Previously, I mean, she's she's put out statements against what the legislature did this year, um, and I, I just, to me, I find it baffling that you are running for a statewide office in any state, but particularly a state like Arizona, and you take such a radical position that is so anti-children and anti-family. Um, it just, it is, it makes reason stare. I just, it's just bizarre. Yeah, but that's the world that, that she lives in, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how she sees the world. That's how they see the world. We see the world differently. Well, and, and we, There's truth. <laughs> there's your truth, and then there's the truth. Well, and, right? and the fact that, you know, when, when, the, when the Alito decision was leaked, her first tweet was <laughs> F the patriarchy. Oh, yeah. Not F. Oh, yeah. And she put it out there. And yeah. I, I'm like, you are a statewide office holder running for governor, and you tweet F the patriarchy? And it's just yeah. well, crazy. Yeah. Where do, you, where do you see this all going? Like, where do you see, what do you see as the big priorities next year after we get through, through this election? And depending on who we have as governor and secretary of state and everything else and, and – uh, you know, I've not. Do you think it accelerates? Do you think it's more heated? Do you think it calms down? No, I don't think it calms down yet. I think we've got more work to do on protecting parental rights and advancing parental rights. I think there's more work to do on that. 
I still think we're going to get a lot more litigation on the abortion issue. Mm -hmm. And of course, right now as we um, talk, we're waiting for the Pima County judge to decide about the 1973 injunction that barred enforcement of that of the previous abortion law in Pima County and by the Attorney General. You know, she should just be lifting the injunction. That should be a no-brainer, but we'll see what she does. The 15-week abortion ban in Arizona is scheduled to take effect September 24th. So whether, you know, she's supposed to rule by then, but I still think we're going to get state constitutional challenges. You know, there's, um, while Chris Mays, candidate for attorney general on the Democrat side, you know, keeps saying there's a broad right to privacy in the state constitution that protects abortion rights. Well, no, it's never been applied in that context. (laughs) And it's really a search and seizure issue. And, you know, I think we can win on that one, but I think they're going to try it, and they're going to try to get an injunction to at least allow abortion to continue until the court cases would resolve. So I still think we're in, in, you know, we're going to have a couple of years of litigation on abortion on state constitutional grounds and whatever else they can dream up. So that, that may block the legislature from doing very much. Um, I, it's, we're in an interesting political stage right now. Is the state legislature going to be more strongly conservative, or are we going to be more like a 31 and 16? What are the divisions in the Republican Party going to lead to? Are we going to have a united Republican Party trying to elect all the Republicans on the ballot? Or only are some that who would rather just keep it closer to 31 and 16 so the so-called crazies or conservatives would not be able to do more? So I think, you know, it's just going to be a while. But I think with all of it as we see what's in the future, I just continue to see we need to do more on recruiting candidates for public office. Mm-hmm. And that there's a great need to um, recruit people who, and a lot of times I think people that are in that half stage of life, you know, they've had their careers or they've raised their children or whatever. I think of a Nancy Bartow and a Steve Yarbrough always, or, you know, that, okay, now's your time to serve and run for office. But we need to have, um, you know, I hesitate to say better candidates, but that's what we need. We do need better um, candidates. And so we yeah, need, no question. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so I think that that will help, I think that will help as far as on communication, on the narratives and all of that, that we just need to, to do a lot more in recruiting candidates. Yeah. Well, I've, we've been we've been saying that on the show for a long yeah. time yeah. and training candidates. I mean, they, yeah. and, even and if not, you want to run, you need to make sure that you know how to win. And not having I'm not a fan of all these contested primaries. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that so I am very heartened by the number of of activist parents who are running for the school, school board across the state right now. And I think that that's a pretty good training ground for future legislators. Because if you can get involved in the school board level, dealing with all those issues, that's, that prepares you for what you'd face at the legislature, probably as well as anything. Yeah. Well, and that's been the Democrats' playbook for mm-hmm. quite some time, that how many Democrats that are state legislators were even serving school boards at the same time. But that's certainly where they started. So Center for Arizona Policy Action, this will be the first year that we're going to spend some money on school board races. We're going to engage from an independent expenditure in, in a, two or three districts and really try to help some of those candidates get elected. We're going to do That's more endorsements. We're going to do more endorsements on school board races. And we, for too long, we've just kind of left that. Mm-hmm. Even you know, as strong as we support educational freedom and school choice and ESAs and everything, we're still going to have a lot of kids in the public schools. And for too long, we've ignored it. Yeah. Well, and it's and if if. Other states, what are, what's happening in other states is any guide. It's probably a good investment. I mean, in Florida, you had a whole bunch of, of solid conservative people get elected to school board uh, in this last uh, primary it election. It was the big coup of DeSantis. Yeah. yeah. He, what, he was 20, able to 20 run. 20 of 30 endorsed yeah. candidates or something right. that he yeah. had? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so. that was that was the that was the big story of that election last last week or two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It was the school board piece. Yeah. Um, if we can do the same thing here, it would send a shockwave all across the state. So it's good that you guys are getting involved in that. Yeah. You know, it's Kathy. She's always on the cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I go back to that list that I just I just referenced, and if you go on their website, you'll you'll see all the success. Um, I don't think there's another group that I can recall. You know, maybe the Free Enterprise Club on on economic issues, but really, the breadth of issues that you all tackle on a year to year basis and move the ball forward. It, it, I don't. I don't. I don't see any other group in the country that does what you do on the, on the state on the state level. I just don't. Well, thank and I'm you. involved in a lot of conservative groups all across the country. I just don't see it. I do have colleagues that are very active in a number of other states that are doing good work. But yeah. but we um, we're thankful. We feel like God's been good to us. But um, and we've had a good team and all that. But there's a lot of work to be done. And we are you know what people often I think overlook. It takes a lot of work to get a bill passed, but then to protect that legislation to get it implemented it's almost like the easiest part it's not the easiest part but it's you know it's again it's another beginning after you get a bill passed and you know when they all go into effect on september 24th this year we'll see what happens and of course right now we're fighting um the referral of the empowerment scholarship account universal vouchers basically um the referral by the public school people Mm -hmm. um to the ballot we're fighting that um they have to file their signatures by september 23rd or 24th and um, you know we're we're working with an, you mentioned Free Enterprise Club with Goldwater Institute. You know we will American Federation for Children. We will be very engaged on doing everything we can to get those ESAs going into effect. Yeah, well, that's I mean the ESAs are the biggest threat to public education. I mean in terms of the public sector unions and and making sure that parents have the choices well, to send their kids. Where I think they need the to way go. you what what. The, they're the biggest threat to the unions. Yeah, they're not the biggest threat to public education. They're actually going to make I, I public actually, education what I, what better. I should have said, and I'll correct my my <laughs> assertion, is that the biggest threat to failing schools in public education to allow parents to make better choices to send their kids to perf- schools that are performing, whether those are public or private or charter or whatever. Well, and that's one thing that bothers me about the left is that they. They like to talk about best interest of children and doing things in the best interest of children, but they don't. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, if they believe that, then, you know, what, what, what skin is it off their back if a parent's choosing a private school or a home school or whatever because that's the best setting for their child? Right. Well, it's power. You know, you can't, exactly. you can't let and money. Yeah, power and money. To all the money. teachers union stuff. It's like David Schweikert always says: follow the money. Right. You want to know why right. something's being done? Follow the money. Exactly. It's all about the money. What uh, what gives you the, the greatest hope as you look at the state, the country, into the future? I mean, you've got kids and grandkids. No, no, grandkids, no grandkids yet. No. Neither do I. So, <laughs> so I just keep having kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was going to be like, John, are you maybe greatest hope? Um, that's a really good question. I. You know, I think um, I think that that people once you stop and think of, and see the merits or like the consequences of some of the things that are going on in the culture, and how it hurts. You know, every issue that we address at Center for Arizona Policy, there's a human cost. It's real life. It's real world. It's people are being hurt. Um, you know, the 12 year old that thinks, oh, the little girl who thinks she's going to be a boy. You know, and then she wakes up and she's 25 and she's scarred for life because she 
you know, she didn't, she just went along with the popular notion mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I think the, that even when you look at why do we still have a pro-life movement, it's because we've seen the humanity of the unborn child, but we've also seen how abortion hurts women. That we all know women who've had abortions and who, whether it was physical or emotional, fallout from that. And so I think the hope is that um, the growing recognition among the population that the leftist agenda, however you want to put it, that it's not an answer. They don't provide solutions. And so we have children who aren't being educated in the public schools. Um, we have you know, children that are being hurt in different ways. And so I think that, that gives me hope. And of course, I'm a believer in a holy God and in, um, with Jesus Christ as my savior. So I hope in him. Yeah. Well, yeah there's there's a lot to. of people who really break down the, the culture war into this, a one last struggle between Marxism, you know, atheism, government controlled everything and really judeo-christian society and there's truth to that there's all, I, yeah. I, that's the, that's actually the way i see it i see this breaking down over the next several years into a great conflict between between people who believe like as you just articulated in a holy god and as jesus as their savior uh who want to live their life uh in, in that regard and those who absolutely reject that and reject Christianity, reject Judeo-Christian values of any sort, and want the government to decide everything. Well, and then also, you know, we could talk about science a lot, but the social science data still is on our side on these issues. And so even, you know, all these experiments, and that's a lot, you know, know, giving a 12-year-old puberty blockers is a scientific experiment um, on on that child. And that's, and so that's where I think, that the social science data still shows. Um, social science data still shows that the best place for a child is a married mom and dad, mm-hmm. and you can't change that um, kind of thing. And so, you know, even that, that I, yeah, it is a battle. Um, oh, I mean, the know. social science data specifically on fatherless homes. Right. You know, yeah. all all these mass shootings that happen have a very common denominator. Usually, either the father was completely absent, completely incompetent, or not there at all. Right. And and most of them not there at all. And so they grew up hopeless and, and not getting the guidance that they need. You know, it's, it's easy to, to blame the guns and blame everything else. But when you look at the, the life that that young man typically was living, it was one despair and hopelessness because there was no father in the home, mm-hmm. no one to guide yeah. them. Well, I'm glad you have hope because the... Uh, because sometimes I, I worry. But I have to because I've got two very young kids, three and one. And uh, Well, I mean, so but it's a battle every day. I mean, we're, yeah. uh, we're doing some battles in our house right now. I mean, it's 11 and 8, and, and the culture is, is coming for them. Yeah. And well, we, we, we've had to circle the wagons a little bit, even here recently, but no, the culture is not coming for you. And guess what? We're, we're going to push back on the culture a little yeah, bit here. Yeah. And, and then you get to where your children are adults, and you both have adult children, too, and you're kind of like, oh, my, that's not how we raise them. Letting go means letting go. Letting go. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, as, as you know, we've talked about before, I mean, God's got this, right? And, and you have to believe that he's in control. But... As long as they're with you, you you as a parent have so much truth to speak into your child in ways that you don't even know. You have so much power to to push back on both culture and other influences that I don't even think parents understand how much. They may think they're failing or they may think that that 
that it's not making a difference, but it does. And that's where school choice matters too, because it's you know is the is the school going to how much is the school or the teacher putting themselves in the place of the parent, and the parent losing authority in mm-hmm. their child's life. You know, when you ask, like, the hope, the other thing that I see missing in what parents need and, and what we see happening is courage, is mm. that, you know, when we see where the, where the culture is going and the challenges that are out there, are you going to have the courage to speak up? And it, whether it's within your family, whether it's within the culture, that, there, you know, we've got some really courageous people that are filing lawsuits to protect religious freedom rights, to protect yeah. different rights. And you, that's what it's going to take, you know, in the in the political public policy realm, is that are they going to have the courage to speak up, state legislature? I mean, this goes back to running for office. You know, who's going to have the courage to speak up and articulate and fight these issues? Courage. It's a great theme. Great theme to end on. Kathy, thank you so much for your courage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for leading the charge in the cultural wars here in Arizona, and, and it's setting an example across the country. I mean, I think there's just no question that you've you've been a template for many other states, which is good. Um, and keep it up. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks, we're guys. Just, we're just <laughs> blessed too. to know you and, and really appreciate all the great work that you're doing. Well, so thanks thank to you, you, too. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, God everybody. Bless. See you.